In the first part of this talk, I spent a good deal of time talking about the different characteristics of the rules that you find in international law. I gave less attention, although I kept touching on it, to the way in which those rules might become part of national law. But I would emphasize again that those different characteristics are very important. As I said, they might well be decisive in uh, terms of the way in which uh, national institutions, particularly national courts, give effect to those areas of international law. Now I want <coughs> to um, head more directly into national legal approaches, uh, and, and there are very many of course, and uh, I have to be selective. Uh, and I begin with customary international law, because there is a convenient divide between customary international law and, and treaty law and the other sources of international law. Now, so far as customary international law is concerned, it is commonly said, uh, particularly in the jurisdictions I know, that uh, customary international law is part of the law of the land. It is something that is to be applied automatically by the judges if, it can, if the particular rule can be established. A rule, for instance, uh, granting immunity to a foreign head of state or something of that kind. Uh, sometimes you get arguments about whether customary international law is part of the law uh, of the land or is a source of the law. Well, as a one-time national judge, I must say I don't find this a helpful distinction, but others do and uh, it may be that uh, there's something wrong with my understanding. But for the most part, courts in, in the jurisdictions I'm familiar with just get on with it and apply customary international law if it is relevant in the situation uh, and, and don't become too concerned these days about some of those issues of classification. One problem that can arise and has arisen from time to time um, may be caused by the law of precedent in the particular case. It may be that uh, an earlier ruling by a, a senior court um, will stand in the way of a, of, of a later court, especially a lower court, saying that international law has moved on. That uh, was a problem, for instance, for a while in some parts of the common law world with the law of, of foreign state immunity, the limits on uh, state immunity, on foreign state immunity. But that uh, problem doesn't seem to arise very often now. There is, a, however, one limit which you can find in quite a lot of the common law world at least, and that is that uh, either by statute or by court decision, the legal system puts its face against the recognition of customary crimes, of crimes under customary international law. The, the judges or the legislature in those countries um, ha have said that uh, international crimes, if they're going to be brought into the legal system, uh, have to be brought in by way of legislation. There may well, quite apart from the constitutional argument, be perfectly straightforward practical reasons for that as well. Uh, it will be necessary, for instance, uh, for some court or other to be given jurisdiction over the crime in question, and that will require legislation. It will be necessary for there to be a penalty, because treaties relating to international crimes do not state maximum penalties or minimum penalties or anything of the kind. Uh, that is a matter that the national legislature will have to uh, will have to deal with. So there is then uh, the possibility, there is there an actual limit on the proposition that customary international law 
as part of the law or, or as a source of the law, uh, and, and there may well over the years be others, but I think we can proceed on the fairly straightforward basis that uh, international law, um, customary international law, is part of the legal system in many countries. Subject, of course, to the possibility that legislation might be inconsistent with it, and uh, I will come back to that. If you go to the uh, international law reports of one kind or another, those in hard copy or those in uh, electronic form, you will find many instances from many jurisdictions, from many countries around the world, covering many different topics uh, and going back uh, some centuries or some decades, back to the early 19th century, for instance, in the case of the newly established um, Oxford Electronic Reports. And you'll find cases there relating to piracy or relating to prize, relating to international ju jurisdiction, to immunities and the like. Now, uh, there are more and more of those cases in these reports um, dealing with some traditional topics like national jurisdiction, immunities, although some of the areas of law uh, are new um, that uh, come up against those arguments. But you find many others as well relating to the law of the sea or to state succession, to uh, environmental matters, uh, to the obligations of states and individuals in armed conflict and so on. So there are then many areas of customary international law that may come before national courts. I'm not going to track through them, rather I just pick up uh, three points about those cases. The first is that in many situations, courts will be concerned not just with the rule of customary international law, they will be concerned with its relationship to statutes or constitutions or indeed the common law, the, the non-written law in some jurisdiction. The, the second important thing I think about many of these cases is that they show very important changes in legal culture over the years. Uh, judges being more or less familiar with international law, being more or less willing to consider it. Um, either on the one hand they're, they're at ease with it, or on the other hand they're suspicious and uh, sometimes rather ignorant of it. So variations then in national culture, in judicial culture, in legal culture, and a great deal in that context depends on uh, legal education, on legal training. Uh, you find these differences in uh, across the decades and between different countries. Uh, there's no one direction in all this. Uh, there's, there's no one country that is more or less inclined for the whole of its time that I've been looking at them uh, to go one way or the other. There are variations. A third um, point that I wanted to pick out of these cases about customary international law is to refer to the provisions of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. Uh, which um, deal with the interpretation of treaties. Those provisions, Articles 31 and 32, are routinely referred to by national courts when they face the question of interpreting uh, the, a treaty that is before them in one form or another. And they do that, uh, presumably, on the basis that this is a good statement of customary international law. Uh, they're not giving effect to that treaty uh, in terms of a constitutional direction that it's part of the law of the land, they're simply taking it as a statement of customary international law. I now, I now come to the interaction question that I touched on a moment ago, the interaction between international law on the one side and uh, national law, particularly constitutions, the common law and legislation on the other. 
and I'll spend a little bit more time on legislation than on the other two. Uh, the, there are um, very important cases down the years, uh, quite a number of them recently, uh, in, in which courts have had regard to international law in interpreting their constitutions. Uh, for, for example, a court may be concerned with the question um, of what is meant by the right not to be subject to cruel and unusual punishment. Now, that may be in an ancient constitutional provision. It can be traced back in the common law to at, la at least uh, 1688, for instance. Uh, but the question is, uh, how do we read that in the light of more recent developments? Or do we have regard to more recent developments in the uh, development of the international law of human rights? Well, that's a matter of great controversy. Another area to move to the common law that is an area of, great, of considerable controversy is the right of indigenous peoples uh, under national law um, to be found in part by reference to older notions of the law of nations, of international law um, in, in the past. If I could be parochial for a moment, there's a New Zealand case a few years ago relating to the foreshore and seabed where the court of appeal in New Zealand made a ruling referring back to authorities from the 17th century on, particularly from the 19th century, uh, in upholding uh, the possibility of a claim by the indigenous people of New Zealand, the Maori, uh, to the foreshore and seabed. And they did that by reference to older authority, by reference to books on the law of nations, by reference to Vattel, by reference to decisions of the United States Supreme Court in the early 1800s before uh, New Zealand came under British rule. So some of these cases, the two areas I've mentioned for instance, can be very important, they can be very controversial, but I want to spend um, a little bit more time on the role of international law in the interpretation and application of legislation. Now, in some cases, the legislature doesn't help when it enacts legislation. It doesn't actually indicate that it is designed, uh, that particular piece of legislation, to give effect to international law. Uh, there is a piracy, sorry, a, uh, a case uh, about slavery, for instance, that um, uh, I will mention briefly, in which uh, the New Zealand courts again went to the dictionaries in trying to determine what was meant by the definition of slavery in, in the criminal code in New Zealand. And there, uh, they should have been better helped by the way the legislation was prepared by indicating that it gave effect, that particular provision in the legislation, to conventions of 1926 and 1956, but the treaty provisions were not mentioned in the legislation. Uh, they did not have that assistance. In other cases, <clears throat> there would be no reason at all for the statute to refer to the relevant rule of customary international law or the relevant treaty. If you consider, for instance, an employment dispute, someone bringing a proceeding under an employment statute uh, on the basis of a grievance. They've been dismissed by their employer. They want to sue. Uh, and, and the local industrial law, the local labour law, makes it quite plain that they can. But the employer in this case is a foreign embassy. The person was dismissed um, as a driver or a secretary uh, for, by the ambassador. Now what happens there? There's no 
chance of saying that the statute in question is ambiguous. It simply says that employees, workers can bring proceedings in that kind of case. Um, it, it says that uh, the employer may be liable in certain situations. No recognition at all that there might be an international law rule that bears on this so far as the employer is concerned. There may well be in the background an international labour convention which says that uh, individuals in these circumstances have the right to a grievance procedure, but nothing on the face of it to say that uh, the employer, the foreign state, the state which has sent the embassy, is entitled to immunity, as they might well be. Well, courts in quite a number of jurisdictions in a case like that have proceeded on the basis that uh, they are to give effect to international uh, immunities, if the immunity can be established, uh, and they do that notwithstanding the apparently plain words of the, uh, of, of the legislation in question. So here you see a rejection of the proposition that you will often find stated in courts, at least around the common law world, that you can't go to the relevant rules of international law unless there is an ambiguity or unless you can point to the fact that the legislation in question was designed to give effect to the treaty. So uh, there are those different approaches which partly go back to the question of uh, culture and education that I mentioned. Uh, similarly, <clears throat> if it comes to the matter of the administration of a statute, not just to its interpretation but to its administration, the courts might well say, will the administrator, in exercising a rather broadly stated power, is obliged to have regard to the relevant rules of international law and may well be obliged to comply with them. Cases, for instance, in many jurisdictions about the Convention on the Right of the Child, the Right of Children, which may not be uh, the subject of uh, any direct legislative implementation, but the courts increasingly in a number of jurisdictions are willing to have regard to those provisions and, as I say, sometimes to constrain the operation of the statute um, by reference to that provision. Now, what we're concerned with here is a much bigger, uh, another big topic of how courts go about interpreting texts, um, not something peculiar to, to treaties on the one hand, thinking of Article 31 and 32, or to statutes on the other hand, or contracts, but it is a matter of just what it is that courts have regard to. The words, obviously, the text in question, but also the purpose, uh, the context, which may be a wide one, uh, the drafting history sometimes, the subsequent practice in other cases, and here again, there are important issues about culture and very large questions, as I say, running far beyond this topic, about how courts give effect to texts. How do they find the meaning? How do they find the spirit? And so on. Um, and I suppose I can say on the basis of quite a number of years now of judging that there's a lot in the proposition uh, that uh, interpreting, sometimes anyway, uh, is as much an art as it is a science. Uh, you can't turn the business of finding the meaning of contested texts into some simple linear equation. It's a more complicated matter than that, or you might say that the judge's minds are messier than that of a good scientist uh, who can pursue a linear equation uh, from one end to the other. Now, I'd like to conclude uh, with three cases 
Um, there are many cases in many courts and many statutes in many countries that uh, could be used to demonstrate and test the uh, propositions I've just stated, but I, I choose three cases that come from jurisdictions I know pretty well, and, and they relate to a range of matters. They relate to customary international law and to treaties, as well as to statutes. They relate to the freedom of the high seas, uh, nationality, non-self-governing territories, and uh, racial discrimination. The first case um, comes from a good time ago, uh, particularly in the history of uh, New Zealand. It's uh, within the early years of British settlement, this New Zealand case. William Dodd um, was on board a, an American bark, an American ship, way back in the 1870s. Uh, was in the deep southern ocean, that vast space of water to the south of Australia and the south of New Zealand. He allegedly committed a murder. He was tried. He was convicted. Um, he's on an American ship. What is, what, is, what is the New Zealand system doing? What is the New Zealand legal system dealing with a foreign ship in respect of an offence on the high seas? Or what is the British uh, system doing, given that New Zealand is then a colony? Well, counsel for Mr Dodd on appeal in the New Zealand Court of Appeal uh, said to the judges, even although the statute that you're looking at, the Admiralty Statute, is broad uh, and may well appear to confer jurisdiction, I'm going to take you first of all to the textbooks. He didn't have the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, that uh, wasn't going to come for more than another hundred years. Uh, I'm going to take you to the textbooks. And what do the textbooks say? They say that uh, the flag state, the United States has exclusive jurisdiction. Uh, and and whatever, the, whatever the statute may appear to, be, to say, it should be read in the light of that rule of international law. And, and he went to um, books by uh, Fillimore and Wheaton and James Kent and Vattel uh, and Story, great uh, international law writers or writers on the law of nations from around the Atlantic area anyway. Uh, and, and the judges were persuaded. Uh, so there you see an early use by a judge, by a court, persuaded by very able counsel um, to uh, read a statute in the context of international law. Now, I come on um, over a hundred years to a case involving nationality, involving a non-self-governing territory, uh, a trusteeship territory, um, at the relevant times, uh, Western Samoa. In, in 1981, after Western Samoa, after Samoa had been independent for nearly 20 years, the um, Privy Council, uh, at that point the final Court of Appeal for New Zealand, decided that a very large number of the Samoan population were New Zealand citizens, which was a great surprise to Samoa, a great surprise to New Zealand, a great surprise to many of the people involved in that case. Um, and the Privy Council um, managed to get to that conclusion by not having regard to the international context. They said they were driven to that conclusion by the words of the statute in question. It was a statute passed back in the 1920s by the New Zealand uh, legislature um, to deal with the citizenship or the naturalisation really of people who'd lived in mandated territories. Uh, Western Samoa had been a German colony. Uh, at the end of the First World War in 1919, it became one of the mandated territories, 
It was a mandate under the administration of New Zealand. It was not under British sovereignty, it was not under New Zealand sovereignty, it, it was under New, Zealand, New Zealand's tutelage. And, and it was made very clear that uh, these people in the mandated territories in, in Africa and the Pacific and, uh, and elsewhere were not to be um, subjected to foreign status. If they wanted to apply for naturalisation, they could, uh, but uh, it would be a matter for them. It would not be a matter of automatically, of their automatically becoming uh, citizens of the country that uh, was, for the time being, responsible for their uh, tutelage in terms of the language of the 1920s. Uh, now, the Privy Council um, did not go to that international legal context. They did not either go to the older imperial, British imperial context. They, as I indicated earlier, they went directly to the words and they said the words directed that conclusion. And, and they say right at the end of their judgment that uh, the strongest uh, argument on the, the side of the New Zealand government in that case against all these people suddenly discovering they had New Zealand citizenship, the strongest argument was to be found in various resolutions of the Council of the League of Nations, uh, resolutions which the court did not actually set out, although they're not too hard to find, uh, and maybe they didn't set them out because those provisions plainly go the other way. And, and it's interesting to think uh, just how differently that case would be seen now, I think, by a different group of judges, by a different generation of judges and lawyers, who would automatically think we cannot read this statute, these statutes, um, just by themselves. We must have regard to the international context out of which they arose, which I should say is what happened in the New Zealand um, court uh, from which that appeal came. So the uh, Court of Appeal of New Zealand was reversed. Um, the uh, Privy Council reached that conclusion very quickly. The two governments uh, negotiated uh, an agreement under which the basic effect of the decision of the Privy Council was reversed. The individual individuals in question who had brought the proceedings maintained the benefit of the decision. They did become New Zealand, they were New Zealand citizens by virtue of the decision, but the wider ramifications of the case uh, were, were reversed by the, um, by the uh, agreement and then subsequent legislation. So there you find two different approaches um, in, in the older New Zealand case and the more recent um, Privy Council decision on appeal from New Zealand, two very different approaches to the way in which the relationship between the two bodies of law is to be, is to be seen. Is it a relationship in which you just go to the statute and maybe get to the treaty, maybe get to the international law, or do you say on the other hand, no, we can't understand this legislation unless we really have very much in our minds the, uh, the international context out of which it comes. And, and you see that, for instance, to take my very last case, which I can deal with much more briefly, uh, in, in a very recent uh, decision in the United Kingdom by the uh, House of Lords, the top court there in 2004. And, and it was a decision about uh, discrimination on um, racial grounds against Roma, um, who, wish, who wished to come to the United Kingdom and who were being discriminated against uh, on racial grounds, it seemed, at Prague Airport. Now, the, um, there is a really interesting holding in that case, 
that uh, the practice in question was unlawful not just under United Kingdom law, but also under international law. And you find the judges um, in, in that case saying, really putting to one side the provisions of English law of the United Kingdom statute and saying, look, under international law, racial discrimination is unlawful. They refer to the Universal Declaration, they refer to the Convention on Against Racial Discrimination and so on. They refer to a range of international law materials to show that uh, that proposition um, against uh, racial discrimination is well established in customary international law. And, and on that basis, as well as on the basis of the statute, they find that the uh, policies and practices of uh, the United Kingdom Immigration Authorities were unlawful and, and so those practices and policies uh, had to be changed. Now my last point really arises directly um, from those cases. You see here in the openness of those senior uh, judges and in international law that international law is now very much part of the way they see the world, the way they see their task. Uh, and, and it's in sharp contrast really to the attitudes of just 10 or 20 years ago in, in the case of those senior judges in London. But it is possible, uh, as, as the older example showed, it is possible to find judges back in the 19th century who are similarly open uh, to uh, international law arguments and international law influences. And, and I think that it is really important as uh, you study these matters, as you move through your professional careers, that you keep your eyes open, that you look to the wider context. Um, there's a real danger in becoming trapped too narrowly uh, in, in our great profession. So keep your eyes open and, and look for the broader view while, of course, keeping to the detail of the matter that, uh, that's in, in front of you. Thank you.